Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You're, oh. Yeah, it's us. You're listening to the second episode of Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter, Caroline, who you've already heard from, I'm Caroline. That's right. My daughter, Caroline, and I narrate each story. We just kind of comment on what we think. And our son, Andy, is our producer. By the way, Caroline, he produced me yesterday by pointing out some of the errors in my transcript. So he's a good producer because I I have fixed those errors. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for the victims and their families in our mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma, so listener discretion is advised. So, hello there, Caroline. Hey. Just got you just got back from Baker Lake camping. I saw some pictures. I saw Bodie in the water yeah. with Lily and I just smiled ear to ear. Baker Lake is the best place on earth when the weather is nice. And we've been oh, out you there had perfect p- weather. Oh, it was so perfect. We've been out there when it's torrential downpours and you wonder, you know, why do I do this? And then you get years like this and you think, why do I ever go back? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm doing okay. The weather has been great for the gardener and me. So I've been just doing a lot of stuff. I don't like to be in the garden when it's hot, hot, hot. So um, I like to be out there when it's nice and coastal, nice, <laughs> cool Pacific Northwest weather. Our story today, Caroline, is entitled Anything for Love. And um, it's the story of a murder of a beautiful soul, an artist, a justice advocate who lost her life for one reason, and that was that she wanted to be part of a family. So it's just so sad. It also begins with another murder that's not about our main subject. Uh, there was a murder in Canada, and our whole story takes place in Canada today. Uh, there was a murder in Saskatchewan, Canada in 1969, and a fellow by the name of David Milgard was charged, and uh, he was found guilty, and he was in prison for that murder. And, you know, people listening may be uh, familiar with the David Milgard case because it was huge at the time. Uh, he spent 23 years in prison, Caroline, falsely accused. And it was only in 1993 that uh, uh, the, the real killer was definitely brought to light, Larry Fisher, um, is the real killer, and DNA uh, outed him as the real killer. But first, there had to be some witnesses that it wasn't him. It was not David Milgard who did this. And so how does this whole David Milgard story, which was huge in Canada, what's that got to do with our uh, story? Well, there were plenty of people fighting for his release from prison, and, um, and then there was a hearing held, and our heroine, our murder victim, Louise Ellis, went to one of those hearings because she was a justice advocate. She was also an artist, a writer, and she was there at the hearing, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But first, I want to kind of help our listeners get to know Louise Ellis. She, she was a lovely woman by every objective standard, not just lovely in that people said that about her, and but by every objective measure. She was just beautiful on the outside, very special and gifted in multiple ways. She was the second of three kids, born June 23rd, 1948, so we're coming up on her birthday soon, to a middle-class family in Ottawa, Ontario, Ottawa, of course, is the capital of Canada. It's located on the south bank of the Ottawa River. And um, the metro area is connected to something called the Gatineau Hills, which you're going to hear about in our story. 
the, uh, the Ottawa Gatineau Hills area is the home to some of the highest paid, best educated people in Canada. Okay. Um, that's why I'm not living there, Caroline. Louise was described as a gifted writer, a seriously put together person. I love that description. And reading about her makes me think of the old grace, grade school marks for makes good use of time and material. I was that person during school. You know, I always got that one marked. Yeah, she makes good time use of time and material, not the dawdling retired lady that I am now. But I'm I'm sure, you know, staying on task, organized, these are the ways that people would describe Louise. She was not afraid of taking a risk if it led to personal growth. And as our story unfolds, it's going to be easy to see how this core belief of hers is perhaps in play as a huge portent of where her life would take her. She worked unusual jobs. I found one called uh, writing descriptions of stamps. You know, how do you get paid to do that? But it's wow. called the Canadian Stamp Yearbook. It's like the U.S. Postal Service if they put out a book of all the the uh, memorial stamps that they have during yeah. the year and yeah. describe what it is. Like so. a catalog. That, I mean, I yeah. suddenly want this woman's life and job. Like, I want to live in this Gatineau Hills area. I want to I know. write descriptions well, of other pieces of paper. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. I, I agree. In fact, my mind is going, you know, when I'm dead, I want people to say these good things about me. And so, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Write that down in that my okay. memorial. Everybody can have a script. <laughs> Refer back to. She sure made good use of time and material now, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, basically, people regarded Louise Ellis as an artist, a creative, an empath, someone who worked for justice. She didn't just run her mouth talking about it. She was a graceful dancer, a vegetarian cook, a gardener, a practitioner of Tai Chi, Okay, I'm probably not going to get her uh, comments about me when I die. Her close friends say that, well, you do yoga. That's pretty close to Tai Chi. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody who knew her and loved her said one thing, that she had a profound need and want to have a successful relationship with someone she loved that she loved back. She wanted to be somebody's special someone, and she was looking for a family. And I think that's why, you know, this desire of hers was so pure, and it led her to something so awful. And it just strikes me as poignantly just filled with loss and and kind of a cautionary tale. Well, as well. What you describe of her longing, I, you know, it's it would be it would be the exception not the rule to find a human who didn't at some point in their midlife or early life want these things. You want to find your person. You want to create your tribe. You want to live in your bubble. You want to make your bubble and no one else can disturb the bubble. I think I think all humans can relate to that desire. Well, only a hundred percent. So she was working for the postal service, doing her art to illustrate stamps in this book and writing about the stamps. But she was also working on a book, you know, as a freelance writer when she started following the David Milgard case. Um, and it just seems like she wanted to write about the Milgard case where this wrongfully convicted uh, killer, he was not a killer, but he had been wrongfully convicted of a killer, of the killing. And she hoped that it would be published. So she was busy. And she was in the gallery at the hearing, as I said earlier, about David Milgard uh, in the courtroom in Ottawa. And one of the witnesses who came up on the stand was a prisoner. His name is Brett Morgan. And um, Larry Fisher, the real killer, uh, he was a cellmate of Brett's. And so Brett was up there testifying that he, you know, freely admitted to him that he had killed Gail Miller, the woman who had been murdered in Saskatchewan. 
not David Milgard. And he thought it was hilarious that David Milgard had been um, imprisoned on his behalf. So Lois was struck with Brett Morgan that somebody would get up there and testify about this, knowing full well he had to go back to that prison. And, you know, snitches get stitches. So she just thought, well, he's brave. She just thought he had all this courage and bravery. I will say, though, snitches get stitches, but inmates get plea deals usually. So it's a thing. There's that. (laughs) There's that. Yeah. She wasn't thinking about the self-serving reasons that Brett might be up there. She, you know, saw what she maybe wanted to see. Right. Yes. Because she was on the lookout for someone that could make her dream of being part of a family come true. Yeah. Uh, She had that lens on and she didn't even know it, or maybe she did know it. And she just threw caution to the wind. She flat out, I can see her hands on her hips. I'm just going to go talk to that man and let him know how much I appreciate him. This is so So important. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And she did. She saw him as an honest, forthright, brave, principled, attractive man. She did not see the prisoner that he was, and she didn't really do that much research about, you know, what his background was. She just wanted to meet him. And so anyway, she just sought him out. And Louise Ellis and Brett Morgan began corresponding after she, uh, she you know, went over and introduced herself and congratulated him and and uh, while he was still incarcerated, and they exchanged addresses. So now, you know, Caroline, when I get the urge to write to a prisoner, I will write to a third party to please deliver this letter to this prisoner because I do not want him having my return address. If I wanted to be a pen pal, for example. Yeah. So, but not not her, uh, Louise, bless your heart. You know, she gave him her address. Ooh. And, you know, of course, she had his address. So anyway, at the prison. Uh, So just a cautionary tale to our listeners, don't give inmates your actual address or maybe even your actual name. So anyway, soon Louise started visiting him in prison. And uh, according to prison records, these were conjugal visits. Uh, so, okay, Canada is just so nice. Yeah. To, oh, you want a visitor? Would you like conjugal with that visit? Yeah, right. Yeah, she fell in love with him hard. I mean, Louise was certain in her core, her heart of hearts, in her very soul, that Brett Morgan was so full of remorse, self-awareness, regret and shame, contrition for anything he could possibly have done, even the thing that she found out he had done, which was he was serving a 15-year sentence for strangling a 21-year-old sex worker named Gwen Telford in her motel room. Oh, my gosh. That's and she a says, very violent crime. It's, <laughs> it's staggering to me that she, again, could not see the meaning of that yeah. part of him. Somehow he was just so ashamed. He had so much regret. He had so much self-awareness, so much remorse. I mean, you know, it didn't occur to her that he was manipulating her. Right. Or that he would have expressed all those same things to this 21-year-old he murdered right before he murdered her. I mean, that's Thank the you. thing is that, you know, contrition is an internal process. <laughs> yeah. Mean, it's- well, she was convinced that Brett Morgan was what he said he was, which was hopped up on heroin and he was just went into madness. And, uh, and in fact, for her death, he was charged with manslaughter, not murder. What? Now that makes me mad. Yeah. That makes me mad. Well, yeah. So, you know, know Canada maybe not. Go ahead. Well, I don't know that he would have afforded like a good enough lawyer. I mean, the lawyers are usually what are able to like mitigate your guilt, quote unquote, at this act that you've very clearly you know perpetrated but like I just that makes me mad because of all of the presumed things I have around it's a sex worker she's young nobody cared enough to you said it prosecute you know I mean that this person was a throwaway 
perhaps in the minds of those people who were trying to figure out a way to cut to to the chase and just get this man in prison. Right. And so he was, you know, he was there for 15 years or he was sentenced to 15 years. So while Louise had been in court that day because she was so drawn to this wrongfully convicted David Milgard, she began to shift all of that energy into getting Brett Morgan out of prison early. So now she was thinking that, okay, so she's on this track. I'm going to write a book about David Milgard because this is so wrong and I want justice. Bling, give me one conjugal visit, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I she just was looking for love. She was looking for belonging. She wanted to be in a family. Uh, and this and so uh, it's so hard. You cause you can't you can. You can spot that a mile away. And I and I, again I'm gonna go back to there are a very limited number of humans who will not have had this in their early sort of twenties part of life, even the late teens in high school, you're longing for your crush. These feelings become so overwhelming that they diminish your ability to see rational, you know, sort of thought, critical thinking, the balancing of what you're seeing versus what you're hearing versus what you know in the background. She's not doing any of that because, yeah, I think for an artist who's looking at injustices, yeah, this man strangled a 21-year-old. Okay, he may have been on drugs, but he still strangled a 21-year-old. Like I, I know people throw a lot of extra detail around that, but that's what you did. And that's going to always be awful. And she's just like, how much charm does this man have that she's willing to like ignore that and get alone in a room with him for a conjugal visit? That alone is like, whoa, what are you thinking? Well, first of all, it's not visit, it's visits. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and she worked to get him out of prison early. And so let me do the math on this. She got him out after eight years. He had a 15-year sentence. He could have gotten paroled in 10 years, but she worked so hard for him that he got out in eight. So I'm thinking, you know, to our listeners, of course, you probably already know this, but when you're doing research about someone that you might throw yourself into and join in holy matrimony or whatever you want to do to start a family, be sure and get some objective data from a third part, a reliable third party, not just the person. So um, maybe their parole officer is a good start. A parole (laughs) officer. I mean, if it was me, I would in, I would probably endeavor the person that I am today. I would probably endeavor to go meet the family of this woman Mm. who has been murdered and get their side of the story. And then from there, maybe the prosecutor. And then, as you say, you know, the parole officer, right? the, the, the defense I, I attorney, the people who there were meant to be an advocate. That she could have done. She could have finished her book on David Milgard, for example. And then, you know, I'll see what happens. Put him on the back burner. But, you know, Caroline, when you want a family. That, well, that's what I'm saying. That, that's a tug that I think anyone who's experienced it. It jumbles every bit of your brain that is solidified, right? Every bit of the habits you formed, they all go out the window. And it's it's sad, but like you get it because I think that is lo- the long the most poignant longing besides food and shelter and safety is love. Like humans long for love. They long to give it. They long to receive it. You know, it's it's just the way we're hardwired from the get-go for most people. And um she gave him a lot of money, Caroline. Oh, she God. set him up uh, with his own business. He was going to be a gardener. And so, you know, maybe he was assigned to the garden at the prison. And so she bought him a truck, tools, a license to open a gardening business called Morellis, a combination of Brett Morgan and Louise Ellis. And she gave him a roof over his head and supported just about everything he wanted to do. And then she quietly carried on with her bird art for the, what you know, U.S., pardon me, not U.S., the Canadian Postal Service. She just felt her heart was so full. She was embarking on her magical forever, happily ever after journey. She saw other people with that and she wanted it, Caroline, and they're just, she did not want to think that there was any reason that she could not have that. 
but she did not live very much longer after meeting Brett Morgan. And on April 22nd, 1995, Louise vanished without a trace. That makes me so sad. I just, it was just every time I, every time I get to this part, I just feel like I want to fix that. Uh, well, and I just, you, well, it's because we have so much detail, like all the steps that got us here are so obvious, yeah. or they appear so obvious to us. I don't want to discount that inmates can find love too. I want, you know, I want to kind of backtrack on dating the individual and, you know, it's just, but at the same time, you know, if someone has taken a life, that just, it, alters the conversation and the the formula by which I'm going to use to determine if you're in my life or not, you know, but. Oh, absolutely. I mean, do I, do I think that all inmates to le- deserve to lo- love? Uh, that's I mean, almost, that's a hard uh, question, right? It's <laughs> not, maybe, maybe I, I don't think that every, every inmate, I believe that killers, I just think killers need to stay away from uh, victims. Agreed. Oh, and turning people into victims. I just, yeah, I, to innocent people who just long for love. Yeah. They're caught up in the um, the parts of life that we can all get caught up in and do all get caught up in. It's just, it's almost the luck piece, whether we're able to find the real thing, not find the, you know, it's just, that's life. But this is particularly sad because you can kind of see the writing on the wall early on, you know. Yeah, you know, uh, contemporary to the recording of this podcast, Target, the store, is in a lot of trouble for putting out a lot of merchandise related to Gay Pride Month. And one of the things that they had to uh, deal with is they had it on young people's T-shirts, a chosen family is a beautiful thing or something like that. And, you know, the word family doesn't just mean woman meets man, man meets woman. Right. They get it married and yeah. they have child and buy a house and wonder why did I do that? <laughs> they they don't a family can be any conglomeration of people who decide that they're going to pledge their interest being the interest of everyone in that family. Yes. And they're going to pull in the same direction and they're yes. going to uh do all of that. So you know, it's not just people in a family start that starts out getting married. That's not the only way you can have Agreed. a family. Yes. But everybody needs to be pulling in the same direction, and we need to know what direction that is. And um, Well said, when Mama. Lu- <laughs> huh? Well said. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, right now, I'm, you know, in a family. I live with a family of one woman, that would be me, and two dogs. And so that's my chosen family. <laughs> I have extended family, but do you want to know who I feed and grocery shop for and I do their laundry and all Those that? Lucky dogs. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, when Lo- Louise Ellis disappeared on April 22nd, 1995, Brett was the one to call the police. He said the ne- night before they watched a movie, nothing was unusual. They, he, she talked with one of her friends who happened to be an ex-boyfriend t- for about an hour. And she was invited to go to this guy's, you know, daughter's birthday party the following day. And, and Louise was very close to this daughter having dated her dad. And so the next day, Lois left early to go to the Gatineau Hills. Remember, that's very close to Ottawa, and it's a neighboring area to um, Ottawa in Quebec where the party would be happening. And she packed a pack of her, uh, a pair of her pajamas, a gift for the little girl, and off she went in her car. So Brett wasn't concerned until the ex-boyfriend called to tell him that Louise had never made it to his house. So the hunt began the day for that day. So the 23rd, um, has her ex done something to her? That is what Brett Morgan subtly suggests to the police. I wonder if he did something to her. So now I want to change gears a little bit. Sorry, but I think it's important because I want to put the spotlight on a woman who already has a family 
And you'll see in this story what all she did in her life to honor the different roles of people who were in her family. Her name is Marie Parent, and she had just moved to the area from Scotland in 1990 to be closer to her estranged father. So she's been there about 90, 90 years. No, nine, five years. <laughs> she's been there about five years to come all the way from Scotland. Uh, she was a mother of four. They all came with her. She had survived a lot. Uh, she ran a bed and breakfast in Scotland before her move. She moved to Canada because her dad was ailing and they had been estranged and she wanted to repair that. Yeah. And she wanted her children to be around her dad so that they would know him and have them uh, ha put him, you know, at the center of their life for a while. So Marie was in her late 30s or so. She was attractive, intelligent, determined with a thick Scottish brogue. She wanted to be a private investigator, and she was uh, motivated to do that because she was against uh, violence against women. So she was very keen on stopping domestic violence against women. She had completed her coursework since moving to Canada, and she needed to fulfill a practicum to get her license. So this is where you've got the confluence of her and this missing woman. And I, I just actually love this woman. I think uh, Marie is something to want to emulate, you know, or strive for the new hero, you know, the sort of like the new, the new version of the American princess. Right. I mean, I just think for me anyway, I know she's Scottish and we're in Canada, but I'm always looking for a heroine um, to balance the masculine and feminine sort of social constructs we have. And I just think Marie is where it's at. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, she's fighting for uh, women who are uh, perhaps dominated and vanquished by men. And so she's fighting against that. But at the same time, she's reaching out to her father to make sure that in his later years, he has he is surrounded by his grandchildren right. and he, she is going to start taking care of him. And, and uh, I, I love her too. And, and um, so she also represents someone who's doing everything in her power to be part of a family. Yeah. Yep. And in this case, she's the head of a family. So the Louise Ellis case piqued her interest right away. And she saw Brett on the news. You know, he was a very um, charismatic camera uh, hog. And he pled for help in finding his love. The love of his life is just so unbelievable that she is, uh, where is she at? Where are you, Louise? I need to find you, Louise. He was out there, man. I mean, he made a lot of interviews. So there were two things at work here. She wanted to help women. And where is Louise struck a chord with, and she needed a private investigator practicum. Yeah. So uh, Marie said she saw Brett on multiple stations and he was putting up search brigades everywhere. And I mean, you know, he was so frightened. He had just this frightened little deer in the headlights look. And she saw him as a pitiful lost soul. Uh-huh. So he's good. Well, that's and what she creeps wanted me to out. Be... <laughs> I'm creeped out yeah. by how good he apparently played it up front. And that just, it's so, it's another layer of disgust to me in these cases because, you know, at least if you act suspicious and you've done something, I can look for the speck of humanity. But if you're continuing to just play the part and you have had a hand in it, I just get creeped out. Evil. Well, of course, you know, he's like a Ted Bundy, isn't yes. he? Yep. Just manipulative. Mm hmm. And um, he can be pitiful and he can, he can twang on the strings in my heart and yours mm -hmm. and uh, many, many people to get what he wants. Yeah. Creepy. And if what you want is to torment somebody and hurt somebody and well, then you're evil mm -hmm. to be able to manipulate like that. And that was him. So she wanted to bring Louise back to Brett, you know, she wanted her here. She's mesmerized by this beautiful, you know, relationship that needs to be repaired. So she, by Louise coming back. So she walked up to his house the day she walked up to his house, Caroline. Okay, really? But anyway, she walked up to his house 
And uh, she she knocked on his door. And Brett came to the door and she explained herself and he welcomed her in and agreed that she could help him. Uh-huh. So two days after disappearing, Louisa's yellow Suzuki sidekick was found along the side of a road that she would have traveled to get to the ex's house. It was neatly parked. It was locked with a gift for the little girl and her overnight bag and her purse still in the car. Oh, God. Dark music, please play. I mean, you know, that's just chilling. There was plenty of gas in the car. It started up right away when the police were responding to the find. And then not long after Louise's car was found, there came the revelation by the press that the pleading, sorrowful common-law husband, Brett Morgan, had only just one year ago won early release from prison for the manslaughter of a sex worker named Gail Miller. Okay, so all this is kind of coming out. And Louise's parents showing up at his front door, getting the practicum that she needs. She's going to find Louise, bring her back. But her sentiments about him, of course, began to shift when this information came out. Her sentiments began to shift, not because of the press about his priors and blah, blah, blah. But more than anything, she found him soft-spoken and charming Although this didn't last as time went on when his identity came to the surface, but she was already getting a hinky feeling about him. Mm. So there, there was a confluence of like intuition and cold, hard facts, which I just want to say, Louise, next time you go looking for somebody for, you know, to make a family with, just combine some hard, cold facts with what your heart is telling you. This is what Marie parents started to do. Yeah. Uh, while talking with Brett about how a body could be moved if Louise had been murdered and buried, Brett said that carrying a dead body was like carrying a big sack of potatoes. It was heavy and it was shifting. And he said it in a way that was so detailed, not I think, He's saying it like a reporter, you know, he's, he's done it. Like last time I tried it, this is what it was like. <laughs> right. She picked up on that. Marie picked up on that. And one day he looked at her and said, you have beautiful breasts. Oh, no. To which she replied, well, aren't you being complimentary today? Now let's get back to finding Louise. See, Marie, boom, nailed it. That's exactly how you're supposed to respond. And then quickly after you leave and never come back. I'm a ghoster personally, but. Yeah, I'm a ghoster too, if I have to. Well, I mean, if I want to. Yeah, I use ghosting. <laughs> so anyway, she was on to Brett. She had a solid feeling that he had something to do with the murder of Louise. Yeah. And she was right. She didn't do what you said, though. She didn't not go back. So during one of their well, meetings to discuss. She's trying to do the right. I mean, Marie is like a a warrior. So I, I could see why she stayed to follow through and get justice. And she's a private investigator in her heart, I guess. Yeah. So she's there for and the long haul. She wants what she wants, but maybe she wants something more than that now. She yeah. wants to catch this guy. Yep. But anyway, during one of their meetings to discuss where could Marie be, Marie asked Brett to describe the car when it was found. And was the seat moved forward or backwards to indicate the height of a perpetrator, for example? And he said, no, I left it just as it. And then he stopped. Oh, my God. And he said it was in the same position Louise always drives it, he said. Oh, I'd be so scared in that moment. The chills. I'm getting them now. So in the moment, sharing energy with this creep. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, he's obviously just spilled consciousness of guilt and, um, you know, he's, I mean, Freud was right. I'm sorry, but mm -hmm. there's Freudian is called Freudian because his name was Freud. Right. And he said, your body is going to tell yes. on you. Every time. Your mind is going to tell on you. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, police are gathering evidence. They checked the alibi of the ex-boyfriend of Louise where the birthday party was, and, uh, and it was fine. He was at the party in an area near where Louise's car was found, though. So that was kind of, 
maybe a little suspicious. He fell from suspicion, though, when numerous witnesses came forward about the party that day and the whole weekend of celebration that he was present for. They also checked out Larry Fisher. I mean, you know, that was the killer that Brett had ratted ratted out. So, you know, um, that would be one way to hurt Brett, I guess. And so they had to look at that. And it so happened that Fisher was in Saskatoon getting a speeding ticket the day of Louise's disappearance. So he was cleared. And I'm going to call that divine intervention. Yeah, I was just going to say like, wow, because if he hadn't gotten pulled over, he's just in a car alone. That's not a great alibi. <laughs> and, you know, he would eventually be uh, matched by the DNA. But that was well after this episode with Louise and Brett. So he was still driving around in Saskatoon, getting a ticket at the perfect moment so he could not be framed for this murder. Detectives on the case were checking all the usual suspects, sex offenders, and so forth. They were surveilling activities of Brett Morgan, and they generally found him busy trying to find Louise. So that was a good look for him. Hmm. And uh, he would be out at the ferry to check with anybody coming off or going onto the ferry. Have you seen her? Here's her picture. Whoa. He was working really hard and he, okay. he had, he was good at manipulation. They call that Caroline. method acting he or that... yeah, he's acting. He looked innocent. Everybody who saw him, Oh, he's just so stricken, just stricken over his beloved's disappearance. And, you know, okay. But people who recognized him from the police, uh, you know, the, 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 some people already were getting it that he was an ex-con. So they were suspicious about that. But for the most part, people saw him for the role that he was playing. Genuine, just so stricken, just demeanor was so beat down, very quiet. You know, he's a smallish kind of guy and he's just got one of those faces that could sell you ice if you were stuck on an iceberg somewhere. So, you know, he just really was. Uh, They were, uh, they got a, police got a warrant to put a wire on Brett Morgan's house um, so that they could start picking up on his phone calls and such, because they really were thinking that it was him. And they were very surprised one day to uh, hear Marie Parent's voice in his house. And they were talking about how to find Louise. And they were thinking, who in the hell is this woman? We need to warn her to get out of that house. So detectives followed her and they finally got her away from Britt's house. And they came up to her and they asked her to come down to the station. They won't talk to her. And they asked her all about it. And she told them all about it. And and they asked her, what do you think about Brett? And in a strong, thick Scottish brogue, he said, I think he killed her. Oh, wow. So they asked her to go undercover and help them. And Marie agreed. Uh, and they bugged her purse lining with a mic. Man, Marie, you can pick a practicum. Whoo. <laughs> she really, she really did. The, they surrounded her with unmarked cars and undercover police whenever she was with Brett and they went out, she and Brett went out to the Gatineau Hills all the time, every day. Oh, wow. Looking for her body, looking for her body. Brett was destitute. She reported back to police. He had no money other than a month, uh, after more than a month without Louise, he was pawning her stuff, her computer, her Mm -hmm. fax machines, anything that would get him grocery money. And at one point he contacted Louise's bank and asked to have access to her accounts and began a discovery of her estate details. Oh, yeah. So hearing about this, so they're getting this information from Marie and the wire that they have in her purse and things that he is saying to her in the car, in the woods, all these things. And so police thought had a bright idea. They called Louise's bank. And they said, hey, you know, here's all the things that are happening and we need you to put a freeze on that account and we need you to call him and tell him that the accounts of Louise Ellis are frozen and nobody's going to get any of her funds and her vast estate 
which she did not have a vast estate, <laughs> but she had, you know, money. Unless her body is found and she is pronounced deceased. That seems logical so, to me. And but also very brilliant. But it seems logical that you would say, no, this person has to come forward either as dead or signing over authority to you to get into their account. I I agree. Um you know, one of the things that they found out was that Louise had made several Uh oh. This is apparently a sad part coming up because... <laughs> Prepare yourself. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Do, do, do. I need to put my hands in my lap and start, stop pushing buttons. <laughs> All right, back to the delicious trick that they just, <laughs> do, do, that they do, just do. committed <laughs> on Brett. Do, 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 do. They found out, they being the police, they found out that when they went to, uh, that that Louise, prior her, to her death, like the buildup of days and hours before she disappeared, she had made regular calls to the bank trying to find out if the money that Brett Morgan owed her, some of which he had stolen from her and he caught her. She caught him mm. stealing from her. She was giving him a payment plan that he had to put this money back in her account. She was calling every like couple of hours. Is it there yet? Is this money there yet? Oh my God. And um, she just needed that for her own uh, validation that Brett really was the wonderful person that she thought he was, and he had just slipped up and stolen some of his money. I mean, no. <sighs> so, I mean, you know, whenever Brett it gets close to being caught in his trick, he murders. Mm -hmm. That's what they're thinking. Yeah. No pun intended about the trick and the prostitute that he was with and he killed her. Right. I mean, you know, but maybe that was a Freudian slip that yeah. Brett murders when he's caught lying and manipulating. Right. Brett and Marie had gone into the woods near where Louise's car had been found, into those Gatineau woods. And the police had been in there searching, but the area was so vast Brett and Marie decided to go deeper in the woods than they had before one day. And there were a lot of brambles, a lot of impassable areas. And it was so difficult and it was sweltering weather. It was very confusing. And Marie made a comment that she was quite sweaty. And Brett made a comment back that the only time he sweats like that is when he's having sex. He also mentioned that when he's with a woman, he likes to hold her very, very tight, meaning strangler. Yeah. Police panicked hearing this over the wire because they couldn't see into the woods. It was so thick. They immediately dispatched a helicopter to buzz in on the scene. And Brett became suspicious of that helicopter and asked Marie if she was wearing a wire. Marie threw her arms in the air, threw her purse into the ground, and said, No, I am not, Brett. Here, pat me down. Go ahead, pat me down. Whoa. This is like a scene out of a movie. <laughs> it is. She stood with her legs spread and her arms high over her head. She just kept saying, Keep, keep doing, keep, pat me down. And he started to pat her down, but then he stopped and said, I trust you. And then they called it a day. Oh my God. Holy shit. Holy shit. I mean, Marie is like, in my mind, my adrenaline right now, she's like, she's in with the Mexican cartel. Like, she's like undercover Absolutely. taking them down. Like, I'm so scared Absolutely. for her. And Brett and Marie then went to a restaurant. And of course, police were, you know, listening in. And Brett scooted closer to Marie and he kissed her. And Marie was nauseated, but she let him do it because she wanted to catch this killer. She wanted to catch him. Yeah. So he kissed her a few times and told her she was very attractive. And later on, she caught up with the police and they chewed her out for getting so close and told her that they were pulling the plug. We're, we're done. You know, he's going to kill you. Yeah, for sure. And we can't have that. And she begged them not. She said, please, please don't arrest him yet. 
I know we can find this body. I know we can. And he, they, he, they just told her, all right, you're going to have one more chance to go find that body. Because they did believe that the body was somewhere in the Gatineau Hills. Yeah. They believed that the Gatineau area, you know, was really close. It abutted the property of her ex-boyfriend. So that's why he was so close to that area on the okay. day of the party because they had the birthday party. Right. Because they had, you know, property up in there. And okay. I don't know. But, you know, I think that Marie was so felt that she was so close right. to catching this killer. Yeah. She was just driven. So uh, Louise could meet up with him one more time, they said. And the plan was for her to suggest that the police were closing in on John Mazeneuve. John Mazeneuve was the name of the ex-boyfriend. Brett took the bait and on a map, he and Louise discussed going further into the woods this time, all the way onto John Mazeneuve's property, which consisted of a few acres of the same woods that they'd been searching in before. Once again, detectives and police officers were everywhere, but they could only hear everything. They could see nothing. And at one point, Brett told Marie to be careful. There's a barbed wire fence right there, but nobody can see it. And Marie bit her tongue so as not to say, how do you know where the barbed wire is, Brett? Right, that no one can see. <laughs> I, I just actually can't believe that police are letting her into this woods. But just as a reminder, she she wanted that practicum. She wanted to be a private investigator. Well, I want to hire her as a private investigator, so I me think she's too. done a pretty good job. <laughs> I would pay her just to talk to me in that broker hers. You can find her on, you know, YouTube. Um, and there are some documentaries about this case. She and her four children had moved to this area under uh, just a few years ago to be closer to Marie's father. And so she had an academic knowledge, but no real experience. And she's thinking, you know, these police should have been thinking, this man has killed before, he's going to kill her. Yes. So suddenly Marie caught Sutton Ramaroon. They're now on John Mazenuf's property or the property that's abutting his property. She suddenly caught something stuffed under a brush and there was a woman's running shoe. And she said, Brett. What is that, Brett? Brett? And he stared at the bundle and he stared back at Marie and he just stared at her. And Marie said, His eyes turned black. Right before her eyes, his eyes turned black. She really thought she was thinking that she had gone too far and in saying that she had just seen a body and Brett was going to kill her. So she shouted to Brett, Brett. We found her. We found Louise. She's okay. She's all right, Brett. And she took his head into her hands and tried to get him to snap out of the trance he was in. And he did. Marie, I'm serious. This reads like a movie. I mean, this is a scene out of a movie. And she's got the major touch. Like, she, I hope she's still doing this stuff today because. I don't know how anyone her can instincts get this close are amazing, to. Mm. and we've seen mm. we've heard that in almost every case, definitely every serial killer case, the eyes turn black. There is some kind of evil taking over. It's like a possession thing, maybe I don't know, but that she was able to snap someone out of that, like whoa! I'm just sorry, I'm in love with Marie at the end of all this. I Brett. am in love with Marie too. To go suck an egg, but Marie, yeah, okay, you're my hero. start packing. We're going to Scotland. Yes. Okay, <laughs> Britt began to wail. Just wail. I mean, he was wailing like a wild animal. Police heard everything. When Brett and Marie came out of the woods, Marie was crying. Brett was wailing and wailing. And he went home. And Brett contacted the police to let them know they had found the body. So they asked him to come in and show them on a map. And when he walked into the station, it was the last time he was ever going to walk free. They had enough evidence on Brett regarding money he had taken from Louise's accounts before they were frozen to revoke his bail. So they put him uh, in jail waiting the murder case that they were going to uh, put against him now. So holy, 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 holy. They did it. Marie. Wow. <laughs> so he's he is nabbed. Now, I want to... 
I want to say a couple of words about Brett uh, because I think it's helpful to me to know how he became this way and not to excuse it. And I, you know, there's really no way to explain it, but just to know what really was going on and have the full picture of this person. By all accounts, Brett Morgan was born bad. He grew up in Edmonton, Alberta. His own family talks about him being off, being a monster, and being a bad kid. As a little boy growing up in Edmonton, Alberta, he was described as a bad kid in school and in the neighborhood. All of this is in contrast to the rest of the family, who by all accounts were just normal, average, happy kids. He started getting into criminal trouble very early in his life, and he seemed to do illegal stuff just for the fun of it. He stole money, vandalized his neighbor's home, threatened his mother with a knife against her throat. And again, all this type of stuff was happening very early in his life. Now, for me, Caroline, this brings up an important ongoing debate about nature versus nurture, doesn't it? I mean, Dennis Rader comes to mind, total monster, serial killer, asshole, creep, who came from a normal family, by all accounts. Yeah. Hinkley was the same way. I mean, most serial killers do come from horrific, traumatic upbringings. There's just a lot of documentation about that. Mm -hmm. But it's worth noting that Brett Morgan's family firmly believed that he was born bad. They watched it happen. Well, that's hard for me, too, because I don't, I don't, ha you know, I, I wasn't there at his birth. I wasn't there for the first year. I wasn't there for the first five years. I do think that the first five and 10 and 12 and 16 years, these are all increments to me that seem really important, but they're somewhat arbitrary. But these years are incredibly important because I do think all your personality traits are fine. Yes, stuff is there, but everything's there for all of us. And so it is the a lot of your external environment that turns things on and off sort of like makes it easier to, you know, grow things versus other things in your own personality. But it's hard to hear a family say he was born bad because I also believe that when you tell a child from the day they're born on exactly who they are, they're going to believe you 100%. And it's going to be more and more difficult for them to believe anything else about themselves. But let's be real, that's external feedback. It's not external pressure. It's not external environmental factor. It's a controlled factor. And you're telling this person how they are. And as a child, why wouldn't they be anything than what the environment around them is telling them they are, right? Right. So, I, I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. Now, I don't know what was going on. And and so I don't want to judge right. this family of origin of, of this killer. But I will say, I, I, I'll sum it up this way. I believe in the Native American uh, saying, the belief, we all have a dog and a wolf mm -hmm. inside of us. The dog is good, wants to be good, mm -hmm. uh, wants to love, uh, wants to make somebody's life better. Mm -hmm. All of those things that is true about domesticated dogs. The wolf will tear your throat out uh, and will do anything to trick you into getting a, just a little closer, a little closer, right. a little closer. And which one of those is going to be strongest and win the battle between the dog and the wolf inside of you? The one that's going to win is the one that is going to be fed. Right. That is the one that is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. So which part of you do you want to feed? Right. And what you're talking about is feeding bad. You're bad. Right. It's it's hard to know, right? Because I was again, I wasn't there. Maybe he was. I wasn't there. I don't know. But but I but also just theoretically. Know, yeah, theoretically. And and hello, like politicians, it's all a social contract anyway, right? I mean, there are politicians out there doing things that I find as appalling as murder. You know, making children fear for the parents they have, the family unit they've constructed and make themselves afraid of that because it doesn't conform to some societal norm that has now ridiculously been written into law. Like, I mean, you know, these these things are, 
when you're young, you don't actually know. You actually would believe that, oh, I was born flawed. No, I, I don't see nature as working that way. <laughs> and we are all natural creatures, you know. I, I lean toward that. Yeah. And I, I don't know what they did to cut off oxygen to this bat. Right. Do, what boundaries did you put up? Right. How did what, you divert you know, it? Did you take the bed out of his room and make him sleep on the floor with a sleeping bag and say, you'll get your bed back when you have one week of, you know, helping others? Right. I mean, you know, just, just, I would go to desperate measure. Your, your dad used to sleep outside your bedroom door if he thought that you were going to sneak out. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean, that's what you do is you, you just, yeah. I mean, as a parent, and that's why I think it's really important in all facets of life, whether you're a parent or not, when you have these family units, you generate, you lead with love, you lead you with, just put some boundaries down. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry that this family had him in it, and I'm sorry that whatever they did to make that stop did not work. Right. Morgan, Brett Morgan had a thing with women. Even when he was a child, he had a thing with girls and women. He did not like women to show any form of resistance or independence. Oh, well, glad we never met Brett. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I don't um, like you either. He was married twice. Married twice, both women feared him due to his violent tendencies. Uh, The first wife went uh, to his preliminary inquiry on his murder trial and described how she married Morgan at the age of 16 and was seven months pregnant with his child. And she believed that Morgan at the time was 18, but he was only 15. So he's posing at a very early age. Um, That is pretty deviant. I, I will oh, say. Very. <laughs> she said she'd been, to, you know, abused, including the time that she was on the verge of suffocation because he put a pillow over her face. She suffered a miscarriage when he repeatedly punched her in the stomach. Uh, I could go on and on and on and on. She decided to leave him and uh, she made plans to fly out of a Nuvik where they were. Uh, li- uh, she decided to make plans to fly out and go to Inuvik, where her grandmother was. It's in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Um, She was talking to her grandmother on the phone when Morgan overheard her plans, and he assaulted her and pulled a gun on her. So anyway, um, she'd be dead if not for her getting out from under Brit. And then there was another woman, same thing. Uh, stole money that she, the her his second wife had gotten from uh, a, a family member who had passed away, um, and finding out that he had never paid the rent, that he was spending all their money, stealing money from her on him on his own self, and I mean, you know, he one time she was telling him that she was going to leave him, and they were in the car. He pulled the car over and began choking her. She thought she was dying, but she jumped out of the car um, just in time. So, I mean, you know. He sounds like Ted Bundy. No joke. I mean, he really does sound like the same. I agree with you. Didn't Ted Bundy have similar facets of his, you know, sort of like childhood? And so I don't know what happens. I don't think it's the family of origin at all. I really do think this is something in the DNA that just doesn't get turned off. But like. And and something he it's a, i don't have the words to describe the criminal mind yeah um i do listen to criminologists who say yes this person thinks of nothing but himself mm-hmm. he's enraged that anybody else exists mm-hmm. unless he wants them to exist and if he is finished with them he will tear them up just like a paper towel and he'll shove it to the bottom of the garbage can right wait for somebody else to come along and take that garbage can out because, you know, he doesn't want to do any kind of work like that because he's above everybody else. Right. So I think she's, he's just this person that could have become a Ted Bundy. Yeah. Meaning the long rat, you know, he just wasn't maybe as smart as Ted Mm -hmm. or he was, um, he, I don't know. It almost seems like he wasn't as affected by this idea that he would need to hide it. 
right? Like that that piece to him maybe felt easy because Ted Bundy, I think that was part of like, I just, when I think about the Ted Bundy case, I think about the alter ego, this black eyed demon that takes over and performs these acts. And then the other person goes back to their regular life, but they're the same person. They have to reconcile that. I don't, I think that's where they differ, right? Because Ted, I don't think was willing to admit that that was a piece of himself. I think he was always, it's some external thing. It's not me. Whereas Brett is like, mm, that's there, but I'm not going to let you see it. Like, this is a thing I keep in my back pocket. It works for me. I just move on. Do, does that make sense? I don't know. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. Anybody with a sound mind is going to have a hard time explaining this criminal mind. Yeah. Now, I have to tell you what happened to Marie Parent, and I don't know whether to tell you a soft... Um, sugary version, or if you want to hear the truth, what do you, what would you want? Oh my God, I want Marie to be all right. <laughs> well, here's the truth of what happened. Brett pled innocent to killing Louise Ellis when he was arrested in July, 1995. His trial did not begin until 1997. And this was terrifying to Marie Parent. She had four children whose safety she felt might now be in danger if Brett made bail. And Marie was also severely traumatized by the encounter in the woods with Brett Morgan, especially how close she felt she had come to being his next victim when she saw he had led her to Louise's remains. So Marie went into hiding and feeling terrified, she returned to Scotland. She uprooted her family. She abandoned her dream of becoming a private detective. She remained in hiding for two years it took to bring Brett to trial. She returned to Canada for the trial and then retreated into obscurity once more. And her testimony is what put him away. To me, it's just amazing this service she provided for Louise and for her family. And to other women who may have been abused or worse by Brett Morgan had Louise's body never been found. So countless dead women along the trail had it not been for Marie Parent. Oh, yeah. She is 60-something now and has only recently given an interview, and uh, which I have seen. And she talks about writing a book about her experience. She was traumatized for a very long time. And so I'm going to stay tuned for that book because I am her fan. If I'm going to write to anybody and give them my personal address, it would be her. I mean, I just love love her. And meanwhile, back to the one I hate, Brett Morgan's defense team uh, uh, named John Mazenuve as a real killer, but that that went nowhere. Uh, you know, he he said that he loved her so much he even bought the house that she was living in at the time of her death uh he he bought that they had bought it together oh. but then she had uh split up with him and and Jasmine his daughter just loved her so much so they all stayed kind of close he's testified that he was not happy that she left him to be with Brett but he said that from the day Louise met him, their relationship had the quality of a heavy truck at the top of a very steep hill. So he just watched it all happen, and there was nothing he could do but accept that she had fallen in love with another man. Oh, my God, that breaks my heart. Yes, it just really awful. breaks my heart. So... One of the things that got him caught, him, Brett, is that he used her credit card the day after she was murdered, but her credit card was found in her wallet in that locked car. That was some of the uh, evidence that got him. So anyway, Louise had spent so many thousands of dollars getting him out of prison, setting him up in business, paying his legal fees. She made him the sole beneficiary of her estate, uh, if she were to die before him. All of this was documented in her diary and also ideas that she was starting to come to her senses. 
that she was starting to realize that her happily ever after was not going to happen, Caroline. So it just breaks my heart that because she wanted a family, this man basically ruined the lives of many, many people. Um, Louise's family, her ex-boyfriend, Marie's family. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just horrifying what happened to her. So they believe that he murdered murdered her in her own home and then staged everything after that. This killer and con man is going where he belongs. The only place he belongs if the public is to be safe. And I find myself thinking that, in fact, yes, as you said, Caroline, I guess this man really was born bad. Yeah. But here's another sad fact. Louise was not going to get the justice that she deserved because two months after he was sentenced, Brett Morgan died in prison of hepatitis C. Ugh. Well, I hope that's a horrible death, and I hope someone misadministered the wrong medicine at the last minute. I mean, that's all we can really hope for at this point. And Louise Ellis wanted to be in a real family with Brett Morgan. She wanted that so much, she gave it everything she had, including her life. I think all he had to do was be honest with her about whatever problems he had. She would have helped him. But that's not what happened. I don't know, Caroline. This case is going to be hard for me to shake. Yeah, it's really, well, because what it is, honestly, at its core for me is this evil coming into this pure sort of like good and it just ripping it apart because I think the pure good has this longing. Yeah, you long for the family. You long for the love. You long for this construction of your own little world within this world, like everybody likes that and we get that and you know ebbs and flows all the things but then this evil comes along fakes it for you lures you down the path and then suddenly you're down this path and you can't go back it's just really sad just i think about her when she was being strangled you know that means that she was looking at him right probably well there's i mean it just makes me sick the blackness in the eyes and I'm going to call him family annihilator. He's a family annihilator. Yeah. It was a small family, but it's all she ever wanted, and he annihilated. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, well, today's episode was researched and written and narrated by Bridget and Caroline. It was produced by Andy. We love you, Andy. (laughs) Our Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media so the word can get out. All these actions help new listeners find us. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate you. And don't forget to live and let live. Bye-bye, Caroline. Bye.